Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor at the GRC Institute. And today we have with us once again, our CEO, Naomi Burley. <laughs> Hello, Kwame. It's all right. It's, uh, <laughs> it's getting towards the end of the year. We can't remember who we are anymore. It's okay. <laughs> uh, who we are, what's happened, what's going on. It's 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 been quite a busy year, um, I think, Um generally news-wise and news cycle, but of course GRCI has also been quite busy, I think, in, in response to um, education-wise and, and getting stuff out there for our members. So I thought we, we would kick it off with uh, the ISO 37301 in compliance management. We, we had an event earlier this year, I think, with Deloitte, where we sort of looked at the fact that it was one of the first of these types of guys that had um culture explicitly mentioned within there. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, look, it's something that uh, has definitely taken off globally. I mean, obviously, we took that in with 3806 and into 19600. But it's something that I think that everyone recognised that the tricky thing about compliance risk management is that um, you can put you can put some tangible controls that are physical or um, technological in place for things. But a lot of the change and the shifts you're trying to make are in behaviours. And that's, as we know, driven by culture. So it's one of those conversations that you have all the time in compliance that is really, really rare to have um, for lots of other disciplines, you know, and structures, business structures that you're putting in place. You don't talk about a marketing culture, for instance. So, um, it was something that I think had risen to the top in all the conversations internationally, so it was really easy to see that come in. And I think it was really important to acknowledge in the standard, um, both in the start when you're scoping and understanding where you are at the present time and understanding what your obligations are, it also includes that having done a scan of your own organisational culture. So you know where you're starting you know where you shift to because you can't do continual improvement if you don't know where you began as well. So, yeah, definitely there. And that's also why um, Heather Lowenthal and myself felt it was really important to also make sure we overtly discussed conduct because that's the tangible expression of the culture as well. Um, so we also had that inserted in there. But it was it was a really interesting event at the beginning of the year, I agree. Um, and some of the ideas that were explored there, I, I found that perspective that that um, the speakers presented in there really, really interesting about um, that uh, culture that you have and how quite often when you're putting in place um, a compliance program, you are arguing for the consideration of, of the risk. Like you are, you you get an agreement about what and what, how much you're going to comply with basically really is is what your culture is. And I thought, I thought that was a really interesting perspective on it. Yeah. And jumping to the next thing uh, for the year, in no particular order, so I hope nobody has like a timeline and, and watching when these <laughs> the events happen. <laughs> but, you know, the AML and Financial Crimes Congress um, as well, uh, the two themes that really stuck out for me, um, you know, a couple months on is that piece on due diligence, enhanced due diligence. And we had a couple of speakers in that, but Neil Jeans um, really sticks out in terms of getting that sort of, you know, what is actually required piece there. And then, of course, we also had um, a couple of speakers on sanctions um, because, yeah. of course, sanctions became a huge issue for obvious reasons. Um, but it, I think it 
sort of a bit of a rethink about what are the obligations, how, how do you meet this risk? Um, you know, some of the similar challenges under AML CTF, which is, you know, identifying who these assets ultimately belong to, which is a mm. perennial challenge anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think sanctions was one of those things that was sitting with a, a specialist in the organisation. And it was a little bit like, well, we've got a person looking after that. And um, if and when something actually happens in that space, it has seemed really unlikely to a whole lot of people. Whereas the impact of, and and I know I, I would be like a lot of members monitoring the news for ages and for a really long time before the invasion of the Ukraine, lots of people thought it just wasn't ever going to happen. It was just something that was going to be um, on the edge of always going to happen and never actually doing it. And then when it did, it tipped everybody into a mad scramble to understand what the implications were um, as soon as countries start sanctioning a, a really big country like Russia that has its fingers in lots and lots of pies and supplies um, essential uh, services to to a whole lot of the globe. So it was um it sort of shifted out from that little specialized area in the might happen one day or you only have to worry about if there's you know something that looks like it's coming from the Middle East or somewhere quite niche to being it could be everything everywhere from anywhere in Europe and you need to sort of do a bit of digging. Um so yeah, it became a really hot topic to understand who is actually regulating this space, who will be calling the shots in Australia. And it's one of those um, areas where because it shifts so quickly and because it's diplomatic and political, it's not going to be something where you can get have a nice consultation period and work through that and set up your structures. You're going to have to be responsive and, and, um, and ask lots of questions and use the government resources you have um, at your disposal. So, yes, big learning curve for a whole lot of members, especially when they didn't have a specialist sanctions person in place beforehand, because, again, they probably thought themselves as not terribly exposed by this. Yeah, so so big one. But, um, yes, Neil Jean's session on enhanced customer due diligence was, as usual, um, very illuminating. And for me, my big takeaway was that that decision-making process and anticipating when you might need to take action. So part of, again, compliance risk management isn't necessarily going, right, well, there's the risk. Here it sits on the heat map. We'll do something about that at a later date or we don't need to worry about it because it's really unlikely. Enhanced customer due diligence is the kind of thing where you need to have all of the dominoes set up ready to go. And it could happen with any customer at any time. Some of them are obviously higher risk than others. You've got them in a you've got them in a little waiting queue for who might need a decision made before others might need that. But it is really about ensuring you've got all that, that it's all operational, that whoever's trained to do that and have the conversations they might need to have with the customer is trained and ready to go. So it is it is a big resourcing process that needs to be ready to be implemented at any time and pretty actively all the time. So it's not one big event that's going to trigger it as well. So it was a really, really interesting discussion um, around something that I think I think there's growing appreciation where there hasn't been in the past for the way that um, anti-money laundering risk is a constantly live risk that happens in little bits and pieces all the time. 
as opposed to one big event, a bit like sanctions, yep. will trigger off, you've got to do all this stuff. It isn't. It'll be a single customer here or it'll be, you know, a transaction over here that triggers all these other things. And you need to make sure all those little things fire off or you end up with, you know, a mass of things you haven't actioned or haven't advised or reported to the regulator appropriately. Um, and then that's when the regulator turns around and goes, well, it's systemic, isn't it? Because none of your things went off and, and did the things they were meant to do. So, yeah, really, really interesting session. Sorry, I'm I'm going yep. on, but it's something <laughs> it's that good. we sort of we go back to all the time is you have to have that set up and ready to go yep. and you have to have those people trained and ready to go. Yeah, special mention of Crown Star and Perth Mint um, <laughs> in, in that particular yes. area. Uh, another interesting thing that came out that I think is going to lead us from one topic into another um, is Austrack released a, a paper on ransomware and crypto assets and we've seen crypto pop up a few times this year there were a couple documentary i think there was four corners did a report on it sbs did a documentary on it there are a few netflix documentaries and who else um but and but asic has also placed it very firmly i think not just this year but last year as well in their enforcement priorities of something that they're looking at and while they are using the misleading and deceptive aspect of their powers i think you know they've said they use their the whole range of toolkit we've seen them mm. use a stop order it, not too long ago under the the ddo regime and yes because i think i think crypto is you know one of those mysterious innovative new products that we all know is probably going to have a big impact on the financial market at some point in time but it's got lots and lots of facets to it that can be manipulated and used by uh, people who who want to um, disguise who they are and where they're moving money to. And, and although we might say everything on the blockchain stays on the blockchain, it's whether someone can actually penetrate that blockchain and figure out um, that information and where it's going. That's 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 a different thing altogether. But yes, and then the other thing is that it's a bit like um, the tech stocks back when the tech stocks had their bubble, yeah. crypto had its bubble. Um, so like any new, innovative, exciting product, um, it's going to, you know, get people on board really quickly with enthusiasm who because they want to be the early adopters to make the most money and then eventually that will, you know, run out of steam. So I think that there's lots of aspects that interest all of the regulators across this space because of the exposure to all those different risks um, that you have there, as well as scamsters coming in and making um, making the most of their opportunities with the bubble by creating fictional cryptocurrencies. Yeah. You know, it's really difficult thing to verify whether it's yep. a genuine investment product. So there's lots and lots of challenges there, and I think that um, I think that in some respects, those who want to innovate in this space are trying to meet that challenge of demonstrating that they're that they're trustworthy, that it's a worthwhile, innovative product to be engaged with. But on the other side, they're not doing enough. Yeah. It, um. So it's it's a really tr difficult challenge for that. But yes, all of the regulators appear to be interested in this space, and probably with good reason. Yeah. Um. So it's it's a bit of a uh, um. We have a growing percentage of the membership who are actually actively working for 
either crypto exchanges or cryptocurrencies developing in theirs, which is really great to see that they've got compliance and AML people working in those organisations early in the piece, yeah. because that's when you can start planning for the future and, and being really proactive about it and protecting your protecting your product and your investment. And I think that's probably credit to the work done a couple of years ago. I think Nick Garriato and the organisation he was a part of yeah. had worked quite hard to make sure that there was a kind of, that I think regulatory certainty, I think, is the language that he used at the time. I, speaking of having the legislation sort of expand to cover cryptocurrencies, making sure that the cryptocurrencies and I guess others in the crypto space understood what their obligations were under the mm. regime as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really sensible of them to have taken that strategic, you know, let's get into the tent rather than let's take the opportunity to be unregulated for a while and just play because people will get their systems set up in an unregulated environment and not be ready to uh, to operate in a regulated environment. As we know, it's a big shift and that can slow down business yeah. when you have to suddenly get licensed. Uh, well, ransomware is also interesting for a completely different reason, because usually, you know, ransomware comes after a breach or some kind of cyber attack. Yes. Of course, we saw a bit of that uh, earlier this year as well. Um, one organization apparently just left the door open or just didn't have adequate processes in place. Um, I think uh, Medibank um, didn't come off as looking as badly, but still it was a major breach. Um, sensitive data was taken. So mm. I, I think the raises questions again um, about what are your obligations? Uh, to your consumers, what are your obligations to the data privacy legislation, you know, the Australian privacy principles, do you know what the mandatory data breach requirements are? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's a whole, you know, you can observe learn lessons learned the whole way along that um, storyline, can't you? There's, there's right from the beginning of, um, you know, th being thoughtful and anticipating the attack on your data and trying to always be re-evaluating what you've got, where you've got it, how you're storing it. And as we've discovered and explored with lots of um, lots of discussions with our members as well, that's a really big exercise that I'm sure lots of organisations have thought, you know, once upon a time, a firewall was the advice you got. And now we keep you know, moving on, it's like, yep, firewall will be step one or or whatever security measures you might have in place. But step two would be um, storing things separately, making sure you couldn't access all of the entirety of the database, you know, all, all kinds of different measures need to come into place. So it's it's getting more and more mature from that space. But then you move forward through the whole understanding uh, what your obligations are around that not just to the regular, but as you pointed out, to your customer. If you have your customer hat on and you sort of think about how valuable it is to them and how much they value um, and how much you value the relationship with them as well, I think you would have different steps in place than some of the players have had in place um, yep. in this example, including the communication thing. And, and, and I can very much appreciate that just like it's a difficult exercise to figure out what you've got and where it is, and why you've got it and whether you can get rid of it, it's a, probably an incredibly difficult exercise to figure out what's been taken yep. when it doesn't physically leave the building, you know. Yeah. So I can appreciate that there's, you know, there's all different schools of thought probably in board discussions. I can imagine there was a board discussion around well, do we do we say that we don't know? You know, how much do you say to customers what will actually give them assurance? And I think that that goes back 
to the, put your customer hat on what would be a really good communication response to that, which is one which was one thing. And again, rehearsed, ready to go, all those dominoes in place, someone adequately trained to actually deal with that as opposed to it being a theoretical exercise that you're going to go through. Absolutely have that nailed across. And like all things in this culture and compliance piece, as much as you might put up all these barriers, there's a certain acceptance of a certain amount of risk, just as there is in your response. So there's always a risk with a response that it's inadequate in some way, shape or form, or it's too honest, or it's, you know, so I think there has to be an acceptance of some level of risk with your communication with you with your customer as well. But, um, you know, having that customer centric view, I think, is absolutely essential to thinking, well, what would give me a level of assurance yeah. that they were that they were taking all the steps they could possibly take? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's a difficult one. Um, but yes, you know, that, that sort of brings us back to this, this other, this other conversation about external actors wanting to, uh, set in chain a a series of events that will make you non-compliant, you know, (laughs) anticipating that you don't know when that's going to happen, why or how. And this kind of leads our, leads us into our, our first, um, well, hybrid not quite in-person conference because we had the OAIC there at the conference um, giving us a bit of a history of their approach that they've taken towards the the facial recognition um, incidents Uh, and then of course we also had them because the events happened in such a close space of time having the OAIC announced on their website that they were going to be investigating uh, both the Optus and the Medibank um, and of course having them give advice on what people can do to protect their data and ACCC did the same and Australia did the same. Mm. Uh, so yeah. a, a sense the regulators is watching and dealing with. <laughs> well they are and and uh, it's, a, it's a learning curve and they had the benefit of being able to sort of sit back and digest what things have gone on and come to a determination yeah. um, and as you know we've discussed quite a bit it's one thing to have one particular lens on it, which a business quite often does. It makes perfect sense to collect all this information about a customer because you can frame that as you can better service the customer. But it's around whether, um, one, you're actually genuinely going to do that, and two, what does that expose you to another risk? And I think it's been a really long time coming for organisations to be absolutely honest with themselves around the exposure of risk to the customer and to themselves. And when we enter into this biometrics territory again, like all technology, and we just talked about crypto, it seems very exciting and full of potential for all kinds of things. But do you genuinely need to collect that or keep it? Or, you know, what are you actually going to do with it? Especially, you know, I, I, I know I should be able to analyse this a little bit better and anticipate why you would want to collect biometrics on people entering the store. Yeah. But what does it really tell you? And and the irony is, and we could talk about we could talk about technology and biases and artificial intelligence all day. I think. Yeah. But the irony is, what does that kind of data tell you and actually add value to your organisation? And and I think this is where. Um, uh, you know, assumptions are made based on biometrics yep. and, and what you can use it for. So I think this is where, again, still back to that culture thing, 
and I'm and I'm seeing an increased level of maturity for our members within their organisations about being brought into the room to have discussions about things earlier, but not early enough in these instances, obviously, um, to have a compliance voice brought into the room and a bit of a chat about what could the other exposures be. Yeah. And I'm hoping that organisations have learnt from these examples, especially with the biometrics piece, is that it might not add the value you think it's going to add if it's going to expose you to all these other kinds of risks. Yeah. Is it really giving you a return on investment, one, in the technology and two, in the exposure um, that you're going to get out of it to to really have those insights. So they're that meaningful. Is there another way to collect it that could be de-identified and not yeah. nearly as dangerous to you and your customer? Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think the two issues there are, I think, re-looking at why organisations have to keep the data as long as they do, because there are some legal requirements in that space. And then when it does come to collecting biometric data, as we saw with the facial recognition cases, is understanding that the facial recognition falls under a special category of sensitive information and the privacy legislation and affords better protection. So the question mm. that OAIC, I think, was asking is, why are you collecting it? Is yep. there an actual purpose for this? Well, that's right, you know, and, and that's what I mean. There's, there's yeah. a lens where you can argue you've got a purpose for it, but is it genuinely achieving that purpose? I think that's mm. where businesses need to sit back and be strategic about this. It sounds good on paper, it's definitely not justifiable to the regulator, I can tell you now, because they've already made a couple of determinations on that. Yeah. Um, and and even if you do collect it for that purpose and it's a genuine purpose, then you get rid of it. So you definitely don't keep it or use it for anything else. But um, but it's it's also, I think businesses have to be realistic and actually look whether they're getting a return on this, some of these innovations and whether it's actually actually um proving worth the risk. Yeah. And, and another thing to to last thing on my particular list um, before we, I guess we change tack in this discussion, is just looking at ASIC generally, you know, ASIC talked about at the ASIC forum uh, last month now, uh, just about, you know, using their their toolkit, the, the the whole range of their toolkit when appropriate. Um, I think the, the a lot of fuss was made about their use or not using the enforceable undertakings this year. Um, you know, they came under fire and during the Royal Commission, and there was a sense that it was not um, a, enough of a deterrent. But there does seem to be some debate about that, depending on where you sit on the fence. And mm. I do know that Professor Dimity at the conference at Kingsford Smith, she did say that it could act as a deterrent for those people who are essentially good actors who want to do the right thing. Um, it forces them to to reconsider their processes and, and go and, and make the changes where it's necessary. Yeah, yeah, look, I agree. An enforceable undertaking is a great tool if you genuinely want the organisation to grow in its compliance maturity and throw the resources it needs to throw at it. So if you were looking at an organisation and thought, look, they're trying their best, but they actually have underestimated what's actually required in this area, an enforceable undertaking might be appropriate. Um, but I have to say it's not visible from a public point of view, so they don't understand what how much it costs because it costs a lot. Yeah. Um, and they don't get the visibility of someone being held accountable. They don't yeah. understand that internally someone will be getting whacked with a big stick because it's reached this point where they've got to spend all this money. So it, it's it's one of those tools where it's great for the compliance program. It's ultimately a great investment for the organisation at the end of the day. Yes, they will have spent probably four times the amount they could have spent in the first place to get it right. 
but it's still investing back in their own organisation um, as opposed to sort of just paying off a fine and, and losing the money. But from a from a customer and public point of view, it, it's not terribly visible as a tool. So it, it serves, a, serves a really useful purpose. So I can understand the Royal Commission was, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, there was a bit of theatre and a little bit of um, visible scalping needed um, uh, to sort of as a deterrent. So, yes, in terms of deterrent, I think it probably if you don't understand what the implications are of an EU, the threat of an EU is not going to be a deterrent. Okay. So so I get I get what people are saying about that. Whereas, you know, ASIC's got some nifty little tools in its toolbox now with its stop orders yep. um, and with the breach reporting regime and with having the target market determination so they can look and they can go back to you and go, yeah, not good enough. So I think that these are really useful, again, it depends on where, at what point in time the regulators become aware of the issue. So a stop order and having a look at your target market determination is really good early in the piece, especially if it's a new product, to stop customer harm happening really, really early in the piece. Um, the enforceable undertaking is great if they were on the path, they were almost on the right track but not quite there, um, and then there's other more serious actions you need to take um, that comes to light. So it's they're all useful as well in the life cycle of the issue um, that we're talking about. As So that's the other thing to bear in mind, that there may be a pyramid and you may think the pointy end is the, is the one that's going to be the greatest deterrent. But in some respects, not necessarily, you don't necessarily want to deter uh, a white behaviour. You just want to fix a mistake or a potential mistake yeah. in the piece. Yeah. yeah. So it is an interesting approach and ASIC have been very active and, um, and it will be interesting to see how that maturity cycle goes with the breach reporting regime as well. Um, it's uh, the their responses to some of the target market determinations has given some clarity to some of those issues um, because there was an early sense that they weren't particularly happy with what some organisations had submitted in that regard. Um, and but. We're going to go back to that, back to that conversation we had at the beginning of the year. We've been having it throughout the year. Is there the talent pool out there that understands how to um, undertake these activities to produce a meaningful target market determination and governance structure that goes with it um, for the life cycle of the product? And you know the pool's pretty small it's in our membership, but it's really, really small which is sort of, you know, where we sit trying to educate new compliance people coming in to help give advice on this. All right. So we're going to change tack. We're going to switch it up. Uh, future focus, um, future highlights. If not, And I know you have a few themes and a few ideas you wanted to, to share with members. Yes. Well, 2023 is looking exciting and exhausting already. <laughs> we're working on the event schedule to be able to sort of put in all of the key training, like I said, we need to fill the talent pool and we're having, you know, we're observing um, even more trends in amongst our membership or, or even non-members. So we have a lot of people coming to us for compliance and risk training who probably don't envisage that they're going to stay in compliance and risk forever. So they come and get the training and then they then they think that that's all they need to know and, and come back a little while later and realise they need to know a little bit more. Um so, you know, what we want to do is put in those 
that foundation skeleton work of the training part and then provide for the professional development of our members who are already experienced, already trained, who need to be up to date with with um, the latest regulatory information or to develop other skill set areas. So we're looking forward to um, continuing on the alumni workshops that have been developing our thought leadership pieces around the three lines of accountability and the reporting lines um, and the practice note that came out on assurance on the three lines of accountability. So that work's going to continue into, into 2023. Our discussion groups, which is for the entire scope of the membership, so I don't want people who are new to compliance sort of shying away from coming along to those groups because it is just a wealth of experienced professionals you can share the virtual room with and hear what common problems they have and how they're trying to solve them. Even if you feel like you can't contribute right now in your um, career, there's absolutely no reason for you not to be attending those. They are free with the membership. We do restrict it to members only. Um, and then we're trying to roll out a much more segmented professional development. So really addressing the needs of those right at the beginning, those in the middle, and those who are really experienced professionals. So that's what we did last year with the hybrid conference and making that free. That's really aimed at our very experienced members. But we are trying to hit that middle for everyone who is trying to gain a skill set to help them um, you know, undertake their professional duties uh, with greater sophistication and maturity. Um, and so we're looking at developing a number of things that address that gap between the certificate four and the graduate certificate. So you make a big jump, you know, the certificate four is the foundations of a compliance management system and compliance risk, you know, doing that kind of piece. And then there's a whole lot of work in between that you might acquire via work experience, but you might also need a course led. So by the time you jump to the graduate certificate, this is all about leading change, leading an investigation, um, a, you know, remediating it after you've understood uh, your root cause for an issue, all those kinds of things. So there's a big difference between those two. And we want to plug in the the knowledge and training gaps in between those because you might not get experience in your workplace, but you want to understand it because either the promotion you're going to get or the next workplace you go to, you might need to lead it. So you need something in the middle. So we're going to be looking at addressing those gaps over the next two, two and a half years. Um, they won't necessarily be qualification training, but they will be, be training opportunities in the middle there. So a really exciting um, 2023 with the conference and the AML Congress still plugged in there as well as our core training. But yeah, busy times. So if you are an alumni or about to become an alumni with um, GRCI, make sure you get that already and be on the lookout for invitations to participate in those thought leadership groups. Um, we really need those resources out for members. There's been a big uptake on the practice note, on the papers, on the reporting lines work, and we'll, you know, we'll be producing double those next year. So um, really exciting. Um, and and we want you to be a part of it. Excellent. And on top of all of that, I hope everyone is probably still braced for the, the promised um, holiday reading. Uh, we'll yes. see if we see if we get it or not. <laughs> That's um, right. Yes, yes. Athic <laughs> has promised us um, a whole lot of releases of reading just before Christmas. It is it is a Christmas tradition. <laughs> uh, we'll see how Parliament goes with with getting through the bits and pieces they need to get through. Yeah. Um, but definitely something to keep an eye out for. Uh, any of those 
Um, if you're not subscribed to all of the regulated websites, then keep an eye on the emails you get from us because Kwame very nicely usually puts in the summary of those. So you can have a little look at what what their initial thinking is. Um, a consultation paper is always a valuable read to see how the regulator is trying to tackle that particular problem. Whether or not you have the opportunity to respond um, is a whole other thing, but where you see the start of their journey, it's it's always gives you insights into what they might be seeing out there and why they might be tackling it with a heavy hand versus a lighter touch. This podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute and the music was produced by Rob Neary.